as we're moving deeper into the retreat. Some of you have noticed and reported also today that more difficult emotions have been coming up for you. Now, this is a very common thing to happen. Not always, as each retreat is different, but it's not at all unusual. Being on retreat actually means that we minimize our distractions and busyness so that we can start to listen inwardly and get in touch with the whole vast inner worlds of our minds and our hearts. And in this silent space of a retreat, we can become aware of so many feelings and emotions that we usually don't acknowledge. And that on one level we'd prefer if they would just please stay in the closet. So with less defenses, less distractions around, we hear the pain and the suffering that are usually drowned by the noise of everyday life, by an overload of activities and responsibilities. Of course, we don't plan it that way. Most practitioners probably are not especially keen on experiencing pain and distress during a retreat, but rather hoping for some nice, deep samadhi and liberating insights. But then perhaps the grief comes up that hasn't been given space and time in our everyday life. Memories can arise, old patterns of self-judgment, or loneliness, deep pain that we thought we had worked through already, and yet there it is again for the millionth time. So we experience unpleasantness, the unpleasant hedonic tone that Chris spoke about so beautifully uh, this morning. And very often, as he explained so clearly, we react to the unpleasantness in ways that are driven by aversion. We don't like the unpleasantness. We think this shouldn't be there and we try all sorts of things to make it go away. Ignoring it, trying harder to concentrate, falling asleep or seeking someone to blame. Very often ourselves. And on top of this, we shoot another arrow at ourselves by taking it all personal and feeling ashamed about having difficult experiences. This feeling that somehow these emotional or physical diffic um, bodily difficulties mean something about me, that they prove that I am fundamentally flawed and unworthy. And we can go on and on like that, piling up more and more layers of self-hatred and judgment. And maybe, as you have noticed, a considerable part of our practice has to do with learning to actually acknowledge suffering when it is there. And to learn how to meet it with less reactivity and with more kindness and gentleness. If we train in honestly acknowledging what is there for us right now, allowing ourselves to feel what we feel. Yes, this hurts, this is difficult. We gradually learn to open to the truth of this moment, 
to embrace it and to hold it with tenderness and with care without adding more unnecessary suffering. And with every moment in which we practice to embrace the pain, the difficult, we actually cultivate compassion. A bigger capacity to acknowledge with less defensiveness what is there. So tonight I would like to explore with you this quality of compassion because I really feel it's so essential. In the Buddhist teachings, compassion is seen as one of the four most wholesome qualities and on many occasions the Buddha himself taught the importance of compassion. Actually, compassion was what brought the Buddha to teach in the first place after his awakening. So he decided out of compassion to share his discovery of the path with his five former companions who had practiced ascetic practices with him. And he continued to teach for 45 years in spite also of being attacked or criticized at times or having to deal with difficult monks. Compassion is one of the most important qualities that we want to cultivate on our path. And it is at the same time an expression of a liberated heart and mind, manifesting in the way we speak and act. When the heart is free from obscurations, from defilements, then compassion flows easily, naturally, as a spontaneous response to suffering and pain. The 14th Dalai Lama says, I feel that a sense of compassion is the most precious thing there is. Now what do we mean by compassion? One way to see compassion is to see it as a complement to wisdom. Both compassion and wisdom address the fundamental truths of suffering, but in different ways. Whereas wisdom offers a way to free the mind by seeing the impersonal nature of our experience and by understanding the universal processes that lead to suffering, compassion addresses us on a personal level. Compassion is about people, about beings that suffer. So compassion speaks to us as the particular person we are, um, with our story, with our very specific perspective. It has to do with how we relate to other suffering beings and how we, as a person, empathize with other beings. For instance, recently the mother of a friend of mine died. Of course, I could have said to her, Oh, you know, these are all just unpleasant Vedana. Just try to be mindful of your experience and try not to fall into reactivity. That would have been true in one way, but it would not have been very you know, relational, not very empathetic, not an adequate response from me as her friend. So compassion has to do with us being human beings, Uh, relating to other beings in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain and anguish, and connecting with each other 
through a deep resonance. Bhikkhu Bodhi writes, like metta, compassion arises by entering into the subjectivity of others, by sharing their interiority uh, in a deep and total way. It springs up by considering that all beings like ourselves wish to be free from suffering, yet despite their wishes, continue to be harassed by pain, fear, sorrow, and other forms of dukkha. So as Bhikkhu Bodhi points out, compassion arises from becoming aware of the suffering in others, from this sensitivity to what others might feel and experience, and it involves a wish to bring this suffering to an end. It is concerned about the suffering and it wants to relieve the suffering. It is the opposite of cruelty, you know, this wish that another being may, may suffer. Thus, you could say compassion includes two aspects. It includes but goes beyond empathy. The ability to feel with another person's suffering. Empathy senses often intuitively what another person is feeling and in this way shares the experience with the other. It is what is traditionally described as the trembling or quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering or anukampa in Pali. If we look around we cannot help seeing enormous amounts of suffering and we allow ourselves to be touched to be affected by this suffering. Empathy is a beautiful ability that we as humans, and I believe also some animals share, to be able to resonate emotionally and cognitively with another being. It is an ability that already can be seen in small children that are able to pick up emotions in other people in astonishing ways. However, feeling with another being does not necessarily make us respond to the suffering and to seek ways to relieve it. Actually, empathy alone can, must not can, uh, bring up strong feelings of grief, of sadness in the face of suffering. And in this way, it makes us aware of the presence of dukkha, but it does not necessarily show us a way out. If we are very sensitive to the suffering around us, but lack the capacity and the means to alleviate it, then this suffering can become so overwhelming and lead to what is called empathetic distress, which is a negative mind state. So this state of just feeling flooded by suffering. So in addition to this empathetic ability, compassion also includes a concern that a being may be relieved from suffering and a motivation to actually do something about it. In this way, compassion is oriented towards a positive vision. It is actually a positive state of mind, not a depressed one. Compassion is a way of responding to suffering with a wholesome mindset, with a wholesome intention. Uh, 
with this wish that this suffering may end. And this is deeply wholesome. It does not stop by just saying, you know, from somewhere above, looking down, oh, poor you, you are truly in a miserable place, which we would rather call pity, pity, the near enemy of compassion. But it carries this vision and the possibility that the situation could change and the willingness to seek ways to, to do something about it. Compassion also is strong, wise and intelligent, not stupid. Sometimes people misunderstand compassion as meaning they should always be nice or let other people walk over them. But that's actually not the case. This is more what Pema Chodron calls idiot compassion. <laughs> True compassion doesn't mean that we allow other people to take advantage from us or that we never set boundaries. If we do this, we are not acting compassionately towards ourselves. A beautiful figure that embodies compassion is the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, or Chenresik in Tibetan Buddhism, which became known in a female form as Kuan Yin, or Kuan Shi Yin in China, and as Kannon in Japan. The name Quan Shi Yin means perceiver of the world's sounds. And it is said about her that she hears all the cries of the world and responds with compassion. So compassion is highly sensitive to and concerned about the suffering and the pain of all beings. It perceives the suffering and receives it with a trembling heart and compassion is willing to be close to the suffering. And you know, to be close to suffering is not always easy, as you may have noticed, because very often suffering and pain don't look or feel or smell pleasant, nice. It is one thing to practice compassion in an air-conditioned meditation hall, and it is a very different thing to actually take care for someone who is ill or very old or uh, poor, which often includes unpleasant views, smells, touches, or grumpiness, aggression, and so on. <laughs> Anyone who has taken care of other people knows this. So in compassion, there is this willingness and capacity to approach and to be close to the suffering, even the suffering that looks ugly, that looks displeasing in some way. Sometimes we are the ones <laughs> suffering and maybe feeling ugly, unworthy, ashamed about ourselves, but compassion doesn't mind. Compassion responds with this impulse to help, to free this being and ultimately all sentient beings from suffering. This is the reason why Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin are sometimes depicted with 11 heads or with eight or thousand arms that symbolize the tireless activity of compassion in many different forms to reach out to all those who need help. I don't know whether you have already seen such um, 
images of Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara. Yeah. So compassion is a positive mind state, committed to alleviate suffering, and we should not confuse it with this kind of pity uh, that clearly lacks this commitment and resourcefulness. I have at times, when I felt grief or desperation, imagined how the Buddha or Kuan Yin would respond to my own suffering. And when I would do this, I wouldn't see them breaking out in tears about my situation. And honestly, I also wouldn't find it very comfort comforting or reassuring if the Buddha would collapse upon seeing my situation. <laughs> <laughs> Rather, in my imagination, the Buddha or Kuan Yin would look at me with eyes filled with compassion and with a deep understanding of my feelings, of my pain, and at the same time, they would calmly and gently remind me of a bigger perspective in which this suffering can be understood and held, the knowledge of a deeper dimension of peace and freedom that can be found in the midst of this struggle. So true compassion is able to fully resonate with painful feelings, with the suffering, and yet it doesn't drown in them because it's so much vaster and so much more spacious than the suffering and therefore it can hold the suffering and at the same time include the wisdom that knows that there is a possibility to end suffering. Or you could say, compassion comes together with the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. This is an important aspect, that compassion is founded on wisdom and informed by wisdom. If this wisdom were not there, what would we offer to a person in pain? It would be so easy to fall into hopelessness, in resignation, in cynicism, if we did not have this wise understanding that suffering is not all there is, that there is a greater perspective and a vision that is available. I will come to, back to this relationship between wisdom and compassion, but for the moment let's just say that compassion includes a confidence and a trust that is founded on a wise understanding that suffering can be brought to an end. It is wide and stable enough to be very close to the suffering and to hold it rather than falling into desperation, like a kind parent holding the crying child. Then, as you may know, compassion is also one of the four Brahmaviharas the four divine abodes, besides loving-kindness or friendliness, appreciative joy and equanimity. And together, these four Brahmaviharas basically cover all possible ways of relating to sentient beings in a skillful way. I see them as a concrete manifestation of awakening in our relationships to other beings. In an ideal world, loving-kindness and friendliness would be the default mode in which we would approach another being, 
this attitude of kindness, of friendliness, of well-wishing towards just the person next to us, towards the bird singing outside, towards the man driving by in his car. And when we see that this other being is suffering, then loving-kindness naturally turns into compassion. When we see joy and happiness in another being, then it becomes appreciative joy, celebrating the good. And all of those responses are held and supported by a fundamental equanimity that knows that all those experiences change, that they are not stable or substantial. Equanimity includes the understanding that our well-wishing, our activities for other beings will not always yield the results that we hoped for due to many causes and conditions that are beyond our control. The fact that those four Brahma-viharas together form a set offers a balanced perspective that sees the fullness of human experience and that is able to hold it in this fullness. Together they stand for a heart-mind that is very attuned and responsive to whatever it encounters. The ability of the awakened mind to resonate with other beings and with all their experiences, sharing their joys as well as their sorrows, but without losing the inner balance. For instance, when you observe the Dalai Lama when he meets people, I am often struck by his ability to be so alive and attuned, showing deep concern and compassion in one moment and breaking into laughter the next moment and then being very concentrated in the next moment. So just this flexibility and aliveness that is possible for him. The capacity of the Brahmaviharas to accommodate all human experiences also shows in the fact that they are said to be boundless qualities, um, which is the reason that they are, all, are also sometimes called immeasurables or apamana. And like all immeasurables, compassion has this characteristic that it is ultimately not limited to any beings or objects or certain periods of times, but that potentially it is a mind state that is extremely vast, a boundless state. When we cultivate compassion or also, you know, friendliness as you have been doing it here, we can actually notice how the heart and mind gradually open and expand. There is a sense of spaciousness and also a quality of beauty and happiness that we can touch. Fully developed compassion is as vast as the sky, so vast and wide that it can encompass all beings, no matter how far or close they are to us, and so vast that it can never be exhausted or brought to an end. There is no point where compassion says, okay, that's enough, I'm done with you, you've received enough from me. No, compassion just flows and flows 
and flows. It is its nature to be sensitive to whatever suffering it becomes aware of and to care, to heal, to soothe, to offer help and support. So why is compassion so important on our path? Maybe you think what a ridiculous question. It's obvious, isn't it? But let's still look at it. So as we've already said, we need compassion as we are facing suffering, unpleasantness in ourselves and in other beings, because it is so powerful in alleviating suffering. And this can happen even in an instant. Whether we are faced with unpleasant, painful, challenging experiences um, in any circumstance, compassion is the ability to hold ourselves gently and with care rather than falling into reactivity. Like a kind mother or father that comforts the child simply by being present for it, um, we too, we can simply acknowledge the pain and whisper almost to ourselves, I know, this is difficult, this is painful, this hurts, and just offer this kind presence and compassion to ourselves. Or we can offer it to another person who is suffering. To me, compassion sometimes feels like this impulse to take the pain that is there close to my heart and simply to hold it in my arms. Very uncomplicated, very simple. And then maybe to drop in the question, what do you need? What is needed here? To be sensitive, whether there is, to be sensitive and noticing whether there is anything that is uh, helpful right now, and then to act accordingly. And as we do this, we can feel the impact this has on our experience. We can feel how compassion almost magically transforms the whole field. It softens and relaxes our relationship to experience. And this is true also when we are suffering, but also when we are open to the suffering of another person. Just recently I heard a nice small example of a woman who has been unemployed for quite some time now and was running out of money. And also she hated it and felt terribly ashamed. She one day realized she had no other choice anymore than to go to the official job center and ask for support. And so she finally went to this place feeling very, you know... (laughs) Uh, reluctant, very down and resigned. But when she arrived in this office and was given these uh, forms to fill out, she noticed how hot it was in this office and there was no air conditioning. And so she said to the clerk, "Um, oh, that must be hard to sit in this office all day with this stuffy air. And she said to me that she really felt sorry for this woman and for the other colleagues around working under such conditions. 
And this made this other woman uh, engage in talking with her and they started a really nice conversation. And in the end, she left there with a much brighter mood after a very nice encounter with this Clark. So this woman, in spite of her very difficult life circumstance, was able to feel compassion with the Clark. And this opening completely transformed her experience. What she had expected to be a dreadful experience turned out to be a very nice personal encounter with this other woman. And that compassion can completely transform our way of seeing and experiencing the world is also expressed in a somewhat more dramatic story that Tiknatan once told that I would like to share with you. According to the Jataka tales, the stories about the previous lives of the Buddha in one of his many, many lives, uh, the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva was reborn in hell. Like many beings, he had made some very big mistakes and created much suffering for himself and for other beings. And this uh, caused him one day to be reborn in the hell realm. And he really hit the bottom of suffering because he was reborn in the worst of all hells. There he was, together with another man. And together they had to work very, very hard under the direction of a soldier who was in charge. It was very dark, it was cold, and at the same time it was very hot. But the guard didn't seem to care the least and brutally beat bed the two men. His task was to make them suffer as much as possible. It seemed like the guard himself didn't have any feelings. He didn't have any heart for those men and mistreated and abused them in many ways. He would injure them with his iron trident. He would push them around and he never allowed them to relax. They had to keep working, 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 without any rest, without food, without drink, feeling extremely cold, hungry, exhausted and desperate. But the guard didn't care. He kept on hurting them and abusing them. Then, one afternoon, the Buddha-to-be saw the guard treating his companion so brutally that something in him rose up. He wanted to protest. Of course, he knew that if he intervened, if he said anything, if he tried to prevent the guard beating the other, that he would be beaten himself. But that something was pushing up in him. So he wanted to intervene and he wanted to say, don't beat him so much. Why don't you allow him to relax? Why do you have to stab him and to beat him and to push him so much? Deep within, within him, this urge arose and he wanted to intervene, even knowing perfectly well that if he did, he would be beaten by the guard. But the impulse was so strong and he couldn't stand witnessing the suffering any longer so that he turned around faced the guard and said, why don't you leave him alone for a moment? Why do you keep beating him and pushing him like that? Don't you have a heart? 
When the guard heard him protesting like that, he became furious. He took his fork and planted it right in the chest of the future Buddha. The Bodhisattva was heavily injured and died right away. But in the same minute, he was reborn as a human being. In this way, and due to his strong compassion, the Buddha could escape hell and took birth in much more favorable circumstances. And the other fellow, what happened to him? As he witnessed this scene, he became angry, but he was also touched by compassion as he realized that this man surely must have had some love, some compassion, to have the courage to intervene for his sake. This gave rise to some compassion in this other man too. And he turned towards the guard and said, My friend was right. Why did you kill him? As he said that, the guard also got very angry with him and killed him too. And this other man was also reborn as a human being. So one thing that I find remarkable about this tale is that even in hell, compassion is possible or if we understand it in a more psychological way, even in the most difficult mind states, under the most challenging and painful circumstances, compassion can arise. We may not know why or how, and yet in the midst of intense pain, desperation or hopelessness, Compassion can suddenly arise in the heart-mind and almost literally lift us out of this mind state and open the doors of our heart. It is the awareness of the plight of another being which, by which the doors of the prison of self-centeredness are suddenly opened and we can connect with another being and at the same time with our own heart we experience a freeing of the mind. So compassion has a tremendous power to clear the mind from unwholesome mind states, temporarily from anger, cruelty, fear, clinging, resentment and others. And this healing and relaxing effect is something that I find so amazing whenever I become aware of it happening. This inner shift from constriction and fear and self-interest to connection and care that is possible. I am sure you all have experienced this shift or this opening at times. Um, and we can all incline our hearts intentionally in this direction when we find that something difficult is arising for us. Maybe there is someone here who is in some way getting on your nerves, irritating you. And see if you can invite compassion into the field. Often the first place where we want to bring compassion to is ourselves. Rather than getting caught in aversion against this person who is blocking the showers for, our, for hours or who is taking too much food in your view or doesn't even seem to bother about it while you are already thinking of writing notes. Um, just see if you can just acknowledge 
this mind state, the suffering in this mind state, to feel it as it is. Oh, irritation, oh, anger. And acknowledge the dukkha that is there. And see if you can embrace both yourself and the other person in a field of compassion, remembering that both of you are human beings suffering at times. Whenever there is an unwholesome mind state, resistance to this moment's experience, irritation or full-blown anger, envy or grief or craving, no matter what, if we can remember compassion, it will purify, heal and relax our citta, our mind. It can free our mind temporarily from an unwholesome state. Because, you know, there is always suffering that we can connect to, even beneath what might seem to be aggression or selfishness. As human beings, we all share the experience of having bodies, for instance, bodies that hurt at times. We all share experiences of conflict, of failure, of aging, of death. This is by Miller Williams. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit, bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit meets the bone. So can we just remember that each and every being that we meet suffers in some way, even if we don't know the specifics? Do we at times consciously open ourselves to listen to another person's story, to their suffering? Another aspect related to this healing and freeing effect of compassion is the weakening of this sense of separation and isolation through compassion. Compassion has the power to melt away, you could say, the walls that we so often create around us and to bring us into touch with the, with the softness and tenderness of our hearts. As we become aware of the amount of suffering and distress in other beings, even those who seem so happy and so well off, we realize that we are not alone in our own suffering, that we are sitting in the same boat. Because doesn't it so often feel like this suffering is exclusively my personal suffering and it somehow defines me? And then we build ourselves around it and then we feel ashamed about having such a self that is afflicted by suffering. We just take it far too personal. But this is simply not true. It's not true that suffering is our personal flaw. Suffering, anguish, fear, stress are universal aspects of being alive. When I have headache, I can bring to my mind that Billions of beings, not just human beings, I guess, but probably also animals suffer from headache at times. 
when I feel abandoned, I can remember all the countless beings who also feel abandoned. When I feel hungry, I can bring to mind all those beings who experience hunger every day. Really, there is no form of suffering that is exclusively my own one, even if it often feels like that. If we can see this and feel compassionate about this fact, we will recognize the deep connection with other beings. I like a Tibetan practice in this respect that helps me to see the universality of suffering and to bring compassion to the suffering. There we acknowledge our own suffering and hold it in a compassionate wish that not only this suffering, but all suffering may be relieved. So it says, for instance, through my headache, may all beings suffering from headaches be free from headaches. Through my grief and sadness, may all beings suffering from grief and sadness be free from grief and sadness. So we always connect with the other beings that share the same suffering. We connect with them, recognizing that we share the same suffering. And this reduced sense of separateness and isolation makes us realize and feel our interconnectedness with all beings. We realize that we are so close to other beings, so dependent too on them in many ways. So this is why compassion also very naturally leads to ethical behavior, which is a further aspect of compassion. Actually, we could say moral conduct is an expression of compassion. It is clear that the deep concern for the well-being of all beings forbids any actions that could harm those beings to kill, to steal, to hurt other beings through our behavior, through our words, um, is just not compatible with a compassionate concern for others. And that's why the Buddha actually said that for someone whose mind is well developed in compassion, it is impossible to act in unwholesome ways. As it says in a discourse, Suppose there is a small boy or girl who since birth is able to dwell in the liberation of the mind through compassion. Very advanced practitioner. <laughs> Later on, would he or she still perform unwholesome deeds by body, speech or mind? The monks answered, certainly not, blessed one. The final point I'd like to mention is the power of compassion to support the development of liberating insight. As we've already seen, there is an intrinsic relationship between wisdom and compassion because compassion is always embedded and informed by wisdom. Now, in some early Buddhist discourses, it clearly also states that the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, like Karuna, like compassion, can also lead to quite a high level of awakening. For instance, it says, if the liberation of the mind by compassion has become boundless and well-developed in this way, 
certainly non-returning will be attained, or else that which is still higher. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that compassion alone can lead to full awakening, because it always needs to be accompanied by insight. Or maybe it's better to say compassion necessarily implies wisdom, and wisdom necessarily implies compassion. In a way, you cannot really separate them from each other. So if you develop one of them, at the same time you will nurture and develop the other one. And yet, as we've said, compassion purifies the mind and liberates it from unwholesome mind states. And this transformative power of compassion is one reason why compassion can significantly contribute to the progress, to the liberation of the mind and heart. A second aspect is the power of compassion to loosen our sense of a fixed and separate self, as we've already mentioned. The distorted perception of a separate self is really at the core of our suffering, of our clinging, of our fear, our tension and alienation. And compassion, as we have seen, makes us realize that we are not so different and not so separate from other beings after all. This is by Christina Feldman. One of the core and transforming insights at the heart of compassion is a profound understanding of the insubstantiality of the notions of self and other. When compassion is really strong, then we might act for the well-being of others, even at our own costs, because their suffering touches us in the same way as our own personal suffering. In such moments, it becomes apparent that these boundaries between you and me are not so solid and fixed as they seemed, and that your suffering is also my suffering. Shantideva, the famous yogi and scholar from the 8th century, expressed this understanding in beautiful verses. Although there are many different parts and aspects, such as the hands, as a body that is to be protected, they are one. Likewise, all the different sentient beings in their pleasure and their pain have a wish to be happy that is the same as mine. Therefore, just as I protect myself from unpleasant things, however small, in the same way I should act towards others with a compassionate and caring mind. In the same way as the hands and so forth are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? Compassion can open up a way of looking in which we realize that all beings are part of the same whole, the same life, that we are all woven into the same web of causes and conditions, sharing the same basic wish to be happy and to be free from suffering. This way of looking softens the sense of this separated, isolated self and makes us aware of our fundamental commonality.
compassion is like the warm sunlight that melts away the frozen parts in our beings, the knots and of clinging and craving and identification that keep us stuck. And it also works the other way around. As our insight into not-self, anatta, deepens, this will naturally increase the compassion. So we've seen many ways in which compassion supports the transformation of the mind and the deepening of understanding and insight. And yet, so often we might notice that we are unable to feel compassion for ourselves or another being. There are many factors that can block compassion, that impede or limit it, that I would like to mention briefly. Basically, we can say that all unwholesome mental factors can get in the way of compassion, be it anger, fear, craving or whatever. As we've already mentioned, our habitual reaction to uh, suffering is often not the spontaneous opening to it and embracing of it, but all kinds of unwholesome reactivity. And all these unwholesome mind states, they cover our natural sensitivity and they make us blind to the suffering in other beings because we are so self-centered and so driven by our impulses. And the totally inflated sense of what I need or want or hate overrides the needs and wants of other beings around me. And we simply don't care, both on an individual and collective level, with all the terrible consequences that we witness around us. Sometimes it's simply our absent-mindedness, our tunnel vision that stands in the way of compassion. Like when we go through the day so completely absorbed in our own world that we fail to notice a person next to us who is looking desperate or down. Maybe it's due to time pressure or stress, but it also can be a habit that we have developed. You know, this lack of sensitivity that Akinchono spoke about yesterday. Sometimes it just seems easier not to notice the suffering and to just stay away from it. Sometimes it's a sense of separateness, of difference from another person that prevents us from really resonating with the person. Most people tend to have more compassion for those who feel close to them, for the members of the same family or clan or nationality or ethnicity or gender orientation or whatever. And this, this tendency to include some beings into our field of compassion and not others, to, to limit uh, our compassion um, really... Um, means that we, uh, yeah, in a way, act cruel to all those whom we don't include into this field. So sometimes this can really act, uh, lead to terrible consequences like dehumanizing those who are not included in our field of compassion. And that's why we really need the, the cultivation to expand the limits of our compassion.
sometimes, and this is a truly difficult one, we find it difficult to feel compassionate for someone who is acting in unskillful ways, someone who has maybe hurt us or other beings. It might seem to us that to have compassion for someone like that will mean that we condone their actions and behavior. Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that. As we've seen, compassion is not stupid. Uh, it goes along with a discerning wisdom that clearly recognizes unskillfulness or cruelty. But compassion is able to separate the person from their deeds and to still feel compassion for a person while at the same time clearly disapproving of certain actions. And secondly, and here again wisdom comes in, when we start to understand that all unskillful behavior is the result of many causes and conditions, then we see the acts of a person in a less personal way. We understand that they are basically under the influence of a lot of confusion and ignorance. All unskillful acts and deeds in this world come from minds that are confused, clouded, that are not able to see clearly what they are doing and what the harmful effects of their actions are. And this should make us feel compassionate rather than angry because we know that they are creating so much suffering, not only for themselves, but also for others. This also means that we might feel very compassionate, even for very confused, angry, destructive beings, and at the same time may need to stop them in their actions, also for their own benefit. As the Dalai Lama says, you must not hate those who do wrong or harmful things, but with compassion you must do what you can to stop them, for they are harming themselves as well as those who suffer from their actions. Lastly, I would like to mention worldviews and ideologies that can feed all these points Ideologies or views can be used to create separation between groups. They can emphasize the sense of being different, for instance, and they can place more importance on some values than on humanity and care and thus be used to justify cruelty. So, so many factors that can get in the way of compassion and it takes a conscious intention to cultivate and develop compassion until it becomes a strong and consistent motivation and a general orientation in all our actions, in all our choices, rather than just a quality that arises by chance when certain conditions are around almost arbitrarily. The more we practice compassion, the better we get at compassion, the more naturally it will flow and manifest in our actions. And we practice compassion both on our cushions, but also in our life, in the way we live our life and respond to the suffering around us, in our families, 
at work, in society, in the world. Our everyday life is the practice ground for compassion. And how we bring compassion into the world through which actions is really a matter of ongoing and personal exploration and creativity. It takes a willingness to listen with an open heart and to be touched by the suffering and to find ways of healing at first in our own heart. And learning how we can open and heal the pain in our own heart is deeply significant. It matters maybe more than you might think. Etty Hillesum was a 27-year-old Dutch-Jewish woman during the Second World War, I don't know whether you know her, who wrote diaries in the year before she was killed in a concentration camp in which she describes the increasing restrictions that were put on Jews in Amsterdam under German occupation, like not, you know, not being allowed to use bikes anymore, not being allowed to use trams, not allowed to go to restaurants anymore, being denied uh, all kinds of rights as citizens until finally the Jews were deported from Amsterdam and brought to concentration camps. And in the midst of this horror, Hillesum, this young woman had a profound spirituality that enabled her to hold herself in this extreme suffering with compassion and with an enormous inner strength that you can really feel in her writings. When she was offered an opportunity to escape Amsterdam and to escape almost certain death, she declined. Rather, she made a conscious de decision that she would go to the concentration camp when it was her time in order to be able to be there and support the other women, especially the younger girls. And this she did. She went and offered her presence and support to her fellow inmates until her death. She writes about meeting suffering. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears his grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. But if you do not clear a decent shelter for your sorrow and instead reserve most of the space inside you for hatred and thoughts of revenge, from which new sorrows will be born for others, then sorrow will never cease in this world and will multiply. If we are increasingly able to gently and compassionately hold our own suffering, then the sorrow will abate and we will come to peace. And by giving space and shelter to our own sorrow, we stop the cycles of destruction and of hatred and contribute to the peace in the world. And I would like to end by another quote by her. Ultimately, we have just one moral duty, to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace 
and to reflect it towards others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will be in our troubled world. So let's just sit for a moment. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will be in our troubled world. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.